Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, tonight, verses 23 through 28. And again, let me welcome uh, returning students. If you're new or visiting with us tonight, we're delighted that you're here. I'd love an opportunity to greet you after the service. And again, if you're uh, at one of the universities in any capacity, we'd love to have you stick around a little extra and have dinner with us to welcome you and also to give you a chance to meet some other folks in uh, the context in which you perhaps live and work and study. Let me also take a few moments to orient you to Redeemer and to uh, where we are in Hebrews because we're in the midst of a study here and I want you to know a little bit about what we're doing. You can feel caught up perhaps. First of all at Redeemer, here at Redeemer we believe that the Bible is in fact the Word of God inspired by God, infallible and authoritative. Through it we believe God speaks. He still speaks to us. So each week we open it and aim to know Him and enjoy him and honor him and the bible's chief theme is that god from the beginning is redeeming people to himself and you could argue that's the theme of the book of hebrews now let me orient you to where we are in hebrews we're in hebrews 11 moving into the practical side of the book the first 10 chapters in some ways arguably is more theological Uh, It shows us Jesus. It gives us an exalted view of how he is God, fully God, and man, fully man. How he is better than angels, chapter 1. Better than Moses, chapter 3. Better than Joshua, chapter 4. Better than Aaron and the Levitical priests and all the high priests that were ever given to Old Testament Israel. How he is, in fact... The true temple of God. Jesus is where God and man meet. He is in fact the great high priest by whom we draw near to God. He is in fact the one true sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The once and for all offering that we can be once and for all forgiven. Well there's a lot more in the first ten chapters. But... uh, The writer would say, therefore, we don't have to hide from God because we have this great high priest. We can draw near to God. We can come to God through Jesus. And now we're in chapter 11. And as we move through the rest of the book, so let me just tell you where we're headed this semester. The more practical side, he moves from topic to topic. He'll be at the beginning of chapter 12 speaking about how we should run the race with endurance fixing our eyes on Jesus. He'll speak of how God disciplines those he loves. And so we should endure hardship. That's a hard thing, but a very practical issue. He'll speak of us worshiping God with reverence and awe. He'll speak of brotherly love, chapter 13, and hospitality. He'll speak of marriage and sex, money, Uh, The love of money, obedience and leadership, praise and prayer, all kinds of practical things that Christians need to think through. And I hope that whether you're a Christian or not, you'll be interested in learning more about. Tonight we're in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 through 28. The faith of Moses, thinking about faith, facing fear. 
faith-facing fear. Let me invite you to consider this very rich passage from God's Word. Hebrews chapter 11, and it's on page 1008 in the Black Pew Bible, verses 23 through 28. This is the Word of God. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So meet with us and teach us and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The story of Moses is about Christian faith. His story is like our story. The writer wants our faith to be like Moses, saving faith. His Savior is the promised Messiah, same as us. His salvation is by that same grace through faith in that Messiah. Moses looked forward to the coming of that Messiah. We look back upon his coming. It's the same Messiah who saves And like saints of old, we face ourselves opposition, temptation, pressure as we seek to endure to the end in faith. And the writer here is showing us how Moses endured, what he had to endure to encourage us in it. Uh, I want to point point out and highlight four things. For Moses, his parents faced the king's cruel Law or edict, verse 23. Second, he faced losing a king's luxuries, verses 24 through 26. At verse 27, he provoked the king's anger, yet neither he nor his parents feared man. Who did they fear? They feared God, verse 28. So those four things. What does faith mean? Fear In the first place, verse 23, by faith, Moses' parents weren't afraid to defy a king's cruel law. By faith, end of that sentence, they were not afraid of the king's edict. What's behind that? Well, if you remember the story from Exodus chapter 2, Pharaoh... Uh, had published an edict, and as my Old Testament professor said, through the Egyptian Department of Health and Human Services, 
he said that every baby boy born to the Israelites ought to be thrown into Davy Jones' locker in the Nile River, and every Egyptian citizen was authorized to do it. This is a reminder, just pause there, of the terrible power kings and governors and Supreme Court justices and legislatures in many places can wield in very wicked and horrible ways. The CBS, perhaps you uh, saw this, uh, reported that Down syndrome had been nearly eliminated in Iceland. But of course, the disease hadn't been cured or prevented. It's just that those babies who have it have been exterminated with the blessing of the government and with the proud announcement we've eradicated Down syndrome. No, we've just eradicated people with it. There's nothing new in that. In the infancy days of Jesus, you remember that Herod sought the destruction of all the little boys. And in our own time, under the one-child policy in China, parents were persuaded, coerced, and sometimes forcibly uh, made to abort. And the government has since acknowledged that at least 336 million were exterminated since 1971. And in that same, roughly that same time frame, more than 50 million here in the good old United States have likewise perished. Under the blessing, permission, sometimes command, of law, by lawgivers, by people. And so it's a reminder of the horrible wickedness of that. Not unforgivable, but wrong. And, but Moses' parents, in response to that, what did they do? They hid their child for three months. They kept him as long as they could at home, but when he outgrew the ability to probably keep him quiet and concealed, they concealed him in a basket which they cast adrift on the Nile, uh, not to see him die, but trusting in the providence of the Lord and to the Lord's care and in God's good providence. You perhaps remember the ironic story that Pharaoh's own daughter uh, discovered him and invited Moses' own mother to nurse him. And so she got to do so until he was, uh, perhaps as they went later than many in our day do, until perhaps he was three or even four or perhaps even five years old. The parents defied the government and the culture because it needed to be defied at that point. That doesn't mean they didn't feel fear. It probably means they didn't allow that fear to control them. And so what you have here uh, uh, is a reminder that before Moses' faith was his parents' faith. And some of you who've gathered around this table to commune with us this evening could, humanly speaking, say the reason that you'll do so is in part because of your own parents' faith. Don't misunderstand me. Your own personal faith is vital, of course. And I don't want to idolize parents or idealize parents or whitewash the faults of parents. But some here will come and say, because of my parents' faith, and faithfulness and efforts to pass on the good news of the gospel to me, God invaded my life. 
They were, my parents were, they were a faithful witness to me. They nurtured me. They instructed me. They, get, they set a good example before me. And so some of you come grateful because of your parents. Moses could be grateful for believing parents. By faith, they faced the fear of man, but they defied the king's edict. They refused to participate in infanticide. Now, you might have thought the writer would say something like, in love, they defied the king's edict. I mean, natural affection of a parent for a child might seek to spare that child, and of course it would be loving, and so we can imagine he would say love. He says in faith. Why in faith? What was it? What did they believe? Well, certainly they believed in God, and they believed in God's promise to the people of God, passed down to them since the beginning, the earliest days. If you remember even Adam and Eve, right after they fell, God immediately in Genesis 3.15 promised them that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That there was coming a physical descendant of Eve who would rescue fallen mankind from the enslavement to the evil one. Did Moses' parents think Moses was that seed? Many a Jewish woman had that hope. Why do you think so many of them were named Joshua? The Lord saves. Did they think that? Well, maybe. We don't know. Uh, they, they saw that he was beautiful, and it's hard to be sure what that's getting at. It, it could be as simple, though I think it's more than. They saw that he was likely to live. Many kids don't live through infancy and Maybe they were seeing kind of the health and the strength. But, but I think probably something more than that. Maybe they saw in him uh, uh, something. Uh, they hoped in him that God would do something with him. Certainly, in the very least, in Moses, by faith, they saw an heir to the promises of redemption. And they saw one of the people of God. And they desired the perpetuation of the line of faith, of the church in their day, at the very least. Perhaps they remembered God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that Abraham's own descendants would spend 400 years enslaved and be cruelly treated in a foreign land before they were brought out and back to the promised land. And maybe they've been tabulating the centuries in their mind, hoping in their generation one would be born. They were believing in God. They were believing in the promises of God and hoping that in and through their own son in some way that would be prospered. And so finally let me say that this this there's, there's a basic biblical principle here as they defied government in the face of God's promises. If government commands you to do what God condemns, if government condemns what God commands, it's okay to disobey. If health care laws mandate your hospital administrators require you to learn to be a doctor or a nurse by actually killing babies or committing euthanasia of the elderly and infirm, you defy that edict from on high and you entrust yourself and your future to God. If your government threatens arrest for reading parts of the Bible publicly out loud, as nations today do in places, or 
commands you to stop preaching the good news as the early apostles were commanded. We say with those early apostles, we must obey God rather than man. If a Nero, think of the early hearers, if a Nero, a coming Nero threatens you to douse you with oil and light you as a torch for his garden party because you confess Christ, you keep on confessing Christ. And our brothers and sisters enslaved, starved, mutilated, raped, and executed in places like North Korean prison camps or ISIS terrorist camps know the cost of this confession. And yet they go on confessing and they pass on the faith to their kids as Moses' parents did to him as all ought to aim. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, in a famous passage in his journal, says, the worst thing in the world for a child to have as a father is not a free thinker. And by free thinker, you need to think of like a secular humanist. He says, the worst thing for a child to have as a father is not a free thinker. The worst thing for a child to have is a father who professes the truths of the Christian faith, but with every breath he breathes in the home, gives evidence that he does not really trust the Lord. Thankfully, Moses had a mother and a father who did trust the Lord, and they did not fear the king's edict. And they passed on the faith to their son. That's the first thing at more length. Number two, by faith, verses 24 and 26. By faith, Moses wasn't afraid to lose a king's luxuries. Now there's so much here. But it says in verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's Pharaoh's grandson, at least by adoption in some way. He enjoyed the, the, all the luxuries uh, and the living conditions of being in uh, a king's home. And unimaginable, I think, that the food that he could eat, educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, access to the most intelligent minds, the best libraries, the protection of his grandfather, the power to command men to jump. And they would say, how high should I jump? I mean, yet... He chose to identify with Christ and his suffering people, it says. He made a decisive, uh, thoughtful decision. He chose Christ over Pharaoh, God's people over the Egyptians. He chose to lose the riches of this world and the enjoyment of the pleasures of sin. For the sake of having Jesus and everything that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what he chose. There's a missionary named C.T. Studd, 19th century cricket player. He and his two brothers and four friends scandalized British society in their day when they gave away their entire fortunes and went to do pioneering mission work in China. In one day, C.T. Studd gave away more than 25,000 pounds, his inheritance. In our day, that'd be millions. He just gave it away, and he went to the mission field. Like 
Moses choosing to follow Christ. Now, you don't have to go to a foreign mission field. Don't misunderstand me. And it doesn't mean you can't enjoy the good things that God gives. We are to receive them with thankfulness, of course. But you treasure Jesus and his people and his kingdom above all. And and don't be afraid of loss. Moses wasn't afraid of loss. Notice verse 25. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He looked at Pharaoh's court and he looked at the suffering of God's people and he saw ease and he saw ill treatment and he took to heart what Jesus would one day put into words. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? He knew he couldn't have both. He couldn't love the world and love God. He knew he couldn't live for power and prestige and pleasure and exalted position here and simultaneously live for the only true king of kings to seek to serve and obey him when that was God's call on his life. There's a baron, Baron Justinian von Welts. He renounced his title, estates, and income and went as a missionary to what was then called Dutch uh, Guiana, I think is how it's pronounced, not sure. It's the northeastern tip of South America. Today his body lies there in a grave, forgotten by the world, not forgotten by God. He was preparing to go to missionary service, and he said this, What is it to me to bear the title well-born when I'm born again in Christ? What is it to me to have the title Lord? When I desire to be the servant of Christ, what is it to me to be called your grace? When what I have need of is God's grace. All these vanities I will away with and all else I will lay at the feet of my dear Lord Jesus. Notice verse 26, Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. The abuse of Christ or the reproach of Christ. The abuse endured by Christ. He he may be prophetically looking ahead to the abuse that the Messiah would one day suffer centuries later. Because like Abraham, Moses saw Christ's day. He knew of the sufferings and glories of the Christ. He told of it. But it may be here he's thinking of this, that when Israel was suffering in Egypt, that was in one sense the abuse endured by Christ. That Christ is so identified with his people, he too is in and with them in their suffering. So that the suffering of his people is suffering endured by Christ. I say that because of this incredible text in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9, which refers to Israel in enslavement in Egypt and how God dealt with them. And it says, in their affliction, he was afflicted. When his people were afflicted, he was afflicted with them. Moses here, it might mean, is choosing suffering which was also the suffering endured by Christ. 
Moses identified with Christ as he identified with Christ's suffering people because Christ suffered abuse and reproach as he identified with his own suffering people. It could be something like that, which would be illustrated by this story. If you ever have read Fair Sunshine, the the story of the Scottish Covenanters and the martyrdom of Margaret Wilson, along with an older friend sentenced to death, they had refused to attend the established church. They attended a gathering of Christians to hear Reformed preaching. And these were unofficial gatherings, not sanctioned. And they were caught. They were sentenced to death. And they were taken down near their homeland to the sea to be uh, placed on stakes in the sea so that as the tide rolled in, they would slowly drown There was a big crowd gathered around, a lot of soldiers there. The 63-year-old lady with Margaret Wilson was out farther in the ocean as waters engulfed her. She struggled for life, and somebody said to Margaret Wilson, what do you think of your friend now? Margaret Wilson, age 18, said this, what do I see but Christ? in one of his members wrestling there. Think you that we are the sufferers? No, it is Christ in us, for he sends none a warfare upon their own charges. What do I see there? I see Christ in one of his members wrestling there. She, she got it. She got Jesus identifies with his people. Yeah, this, is, this is Christ telling the apostle Paul. Uh, Why do you persecute me when he was persecuting Jesus' people? Well, what about you? Some of you have had uh, less trouble when you were pagans than since you became Christians. Life hasn't been easier. It's been harder following Jesus. Have you suffered loss in following him? Have you given up the world and its riches for Christ and his kingdom? You haven't lost anything that matters most, Moses would say to you. He suffered loss because he was what? End of verse 26, looking forward to the reward. He was looking forward to the eternal life promised to him as a gift. He was looking forward to the heavenly city of God where he would live with the people of God and enjoy face to face the Savior of God, the Savior from God. Moses wanted to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from the lips of Jesus, not from the world. Don't be afraid to make that choice yourself and to suffer loss for the sake of Christ. Now, verse 27, we see a third thing. By faith, Moses didn't fear a king's anger. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. What's that talking about? Some think it's talking about the Exodus, but that comes back around at verse 29. This is perhaps more likely the story of his individual flight from Egypt. If you were to look at Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, this is the story when an Egyptian was out beating one of the Israelite slaves and Moses intervened and he killed the Egyptian 
and he buried him in the sand. And the king found out. And Moses left his adopted grandfather's kingdom. And Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was angry. And it might just be that some of you have tasted the anger of authority figures in your life for the sake of following Jesus. If you follow God's call on your life, you may just taste anger from others. Maybe it's for you been a family member or an employer, a friend. And the more powerful that person is, the harder that can be or the nearer to you they are the harder that can be. Some of us know what it's like to have dear ones angry at us for believing in Jesus. 29 years later, I can still see my father's beat red face as he ran into the room overhearing me talk about how Jesus had saved me from hell. And he was mad as a hornet. Maybe you share a similar kind of story. Thankfully, 29 years later, my dad isn't as mad anymore. And on occasion, I get to actually talk rationally and reasonably about the gospel with him. You could pray for him. But it it is the case that maybe you, in trusting the Lord, have experienced the anger of another. and, And the pressure that puts upon you. How did Moses endure that pressure? Verse 27, at the end, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He kept the one who is invisible before his eyes. There's Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Five guys walking in the woods in a deep winter snow. They decided to see who could make the straightest path to a clump of trees in the distance. Most of them put one foot in front of the other and they looked down at their feet as they went. And then they got all the way across the clearing and they looked back and they saw that one had made a curved path. Uh, One had made a crooked path. Two had made zigzagged paths and one was straight. And they asked the guy how he made a straight path. He said, well, I looked At one tree, I didn't look down at my feet. I kept my gaze across the clearing at the one tree and kept aiming at that. And I walked straight toward it. Moses here kept the one who is invisible before his eyes. And so he kept going. He kept on enduring despite the pressure of having to leave Egypt. Leave father and mother and grandparents getting pushed off the path that he was on to be the deliverer of the Israelites. He'll wait 40 years while he tends sheep in Midian waiting for that to come about. Maybe your faith has faced something like that. The disapproval of others, the anger of family. Uh, The need even perhaps to live somewhere else just so you can follow Jesus. How do you face that? You keep the Lord always before you. And the final thing we see is this, because that's how he didn't fear the king's anger. How did he not? By keeping the Lord always before him. And at verse 28, we find that he did fear one by faith he feared god he feared the judgment of god 
He feared the destroyer of the firstborn, the final of the ten plagues that came upon the Egyptians. You remember this story. Pharaoh was hard of heart. He would not let God's people go. A series of plagues that increased in their painfulness in some way came upon he and his whole nation. And finally, there was the promise of this last and final plague, the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh, all the way down to the death of the firstborn of the least slave girl in Egypt, all liable to death, deserving of death. And you know who else deserved death? The Israelites deserved death. They weren't exempt from the angel of death. It wasn't like the Egyptians were really, really bad and they were going to get what they deserve for their evil, but the Israelites, you know, they were, they were really, really good and they got a free pass. No, actually, they're all together liable to the avenger because they are all evil and deserving of judgment and in need of redemption and protection unless there is a shield for them unless God shields them they are not safe and so what did God tell them to do he said take a lamb slay it take the blood sprinkle it on the two doorposts and the lentil of your house and I when I come I will see the blood and I will pass over you By faith, verse 28, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Oh, how about you? Do you understand your own personal need for a shield from the judgment to which you are liable before God? Do you understand that what this table represents is Jesus, our Passover lamb, who was slain for us? You need to personally appropriate, personally embrace, as the Israelites had to put the blood on their own doorposts. You need to take what is offered as a gift for you. And when God came in judgment and he saw the blood, it was as if it said no judgment can come here. No death can enter this home because a death has already come. And no more is demanded. P.T. Forsyth once told about a man named Shamel who was fighting against the czarist regime in Russia in the 1870s. And Shamel had kind of created his own little guerrilla community in which he was sort of the the head of his own little universe. And he had all these fighting men with him, but he also had their families and their livestock with him. And his, his organization kind of ran by the rules that he set. And one day, stealing broke out in the camp and his organization began to fall apart in mutual suspicion of one another. So Shamel laid down the law and he announced the penalty. Thou shalt not steal upon the pain of a hundred lashes. Before long the thief was caught, but it happened to be Shamel's own mother. Now he had a problem, we might say, of law and love. 
For the sake of his universe, the law must stand. In no society can stealing be tolerated, can't be treated with indifference. And at the same time, he loved his mother, and he couldn't face the requirements of his own law that she bear the 100 lashes. So, so what should he do? He doesn't want to see his own mother beaten. He shut himself up in his tent for three days, trying to come up with some solution. And then he finally came out with his mind made up, and he brought his mother forward. And before she had been struck with even three lashes, he intervened, and he took her out, and he said, lay the rest of them on my own back. The price has to be paid. The price will be paid by me, he said. His law stood and love stood. The only possible solution was to receive the punishment in his own person. That's what God is showing you and I and them in the Passover meal. A substitute can die your death. A little lamb, that little lamb, was but a picture and a promise and a foreshadowing of the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In which God himself bears what we deserve upon the cross. Don't say then, I don't deserve judgment. But rather say, but oh Lord God. There is a shelter for me in your son. And his blood covers me. I shelter myself in him. Do you see then? Not all fear is bad. In fact, Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who fear the Lord shelter themselves in Jesus. And if you do, you may face a king's cruel edict. You may face the loss of a king's luxury. You may face the pressure of a king's anger. Don't fear man. Don't fear loss. Don't fear that anger. Fear God. And that fear will drive out every other. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know our weak and fearful hearts. Thank you that Jesus is a good shepherd. He died for our sins. He loves us. He's gracious. He's kind. We ask that you'd forgive our failures in standing for you, believing in you, trusting in you, witnessing for you, uh, confessing our faith in you. We ask that you would strengthen us because of your great mercy to us in our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.